0: All right, good morning all. Hopefully you all are well. We are in week three of this series entitled Bizarre Bible. It's sort of a continuation of our apologetic series that took place in August where we talked about reasons for the faith or we talked about Christians being able to give a ready defense for the claims of Christianity. And it's an extension of that series in that we're going to be looking at and have been looking at some of the more difficult passages in the scriptures, namely because one of the the most common modern hurdles to faith today is the actual content of the Bible, and what I mean by that is people will say, look, I don't know if I believe in a God, but even if there is a God, I certainly wouldn't worship the God that's described in your Bible. And so they read stories, a lot of them, especially in the Old Testament, but both Old and New Testament, and they they go like, wow, even if there is a God, he's certainly not the God that I would worship if if that's how he is. And so we've been using this quote by Isaac Asimov, the famous science fiction writer and professor. Properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. In other words, If you Christians actually read your Bible, you'd jump ship and become an atheist like me. And the idea is that you're Christians, you just focus on the good stuff, you go to church, you read all the good stories, you pick what you wanna listen to, pick what you wanna talk about, but if you actually read all of it, all the stories found in your Bible, your sacred text, you'd jump ship, you wouldn't be a Christian, you'd leave. And so what we wanna do is look at some of these passages Because we believe the entire Bible is the word of God, even the bizarre stuff, even the weird stuff, even the difficult stuff. And we believe that you can trust the Bible all of the time. And when stuff isn't adding up, just dig deeper and deeper, keep going and keep going, and let the Bible say what it wants to say. And so today we're gonna look at one of the this is like one of the most difficult passages in the scripture. It's like the quintessential, look at God, he's a jealous, vindictive, quick to anger God who the second you mess up is gonna kill you. Um, this is like the quintessential one. It came up on Rogan recently where he had a guest on and they're like, oh yeah, that one story in the Bible, yeah, that one, could you, did you read that? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and it's, it's sort of like an example of the accusation that says, God is just quick to anger. He's he's looking down from heaven. He doesn't love you. He's just looking to like take you out. And so you never know where you stand because one moment things can be good and then another second God's angry and like whole people are being uh, annihilated. This has amplified this issue on an emotional level, especially if you grew up in a household where you never knew where you stood. You didn't know if dad was gonna come home kind of calm or if he's gonna come home angry. And something that you did one day wasn't a problem, but then the other day, mom or dad would flip out and the whole house would explode. You know what I mean? So then you take that upbringing and the pain that you, that you have towards earthly parents, towards earthly father figure, and then you read the scriptures and depending upon your reading, it could appear as if God's just like that. I never know where I stand before him. At any moment, he's gonna flip. And so uh, this is like the verse that captures that. It's from 2 Kings. This is the whole thing. This is the whole thing we're covering today. That's it. 2 Kings, Elisha the prophet just performs a miracle, and then he travels to Bethel, and this is what it records. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Okay, so uh, what's what's going on? So apparently, there's this old dude, he's bald, he goes up to this place, and there's some little kids, some small boys, and they're making fun of him. What's up, baldy? Go up, baldy. And then God sends some bears to take him out. And as you can see, this on emotional level is like, whoa, some little boys just make like a joke. They're kind of making fun of him, but he, he, kills, he kills them all. So it causes deep emotional angst. And then for some of you, you know, for those of you who might, you know, relate to Elisha, you're like, what's the problem, man? <laughs> the Lord understands the plight of the ball, man. He knows what it's like, man. He, he, he defends the ball, man. That's the heart of God. So listen up, young people. This is the word. And you're like, okay, sermon done. No need for explanation. Let's go home. Don't, okay. But for the majority of us, it's like, dude, is this, is this really what's going on here? So what I'd like to do is... Do what we sometimes do here is just ask some questions and the questions will hopefully enable us to dig deeper, some questions about where, like location, some questions about who, who's involved in the story, what questions, like what are they actually saying by calling him bald and, and why is all of this going down the way it does? And so the first question in order to really kind of begin to unravel the mystery is a where question. Where is this taking place? It's taking place right outside of a town called, a city called Bethel. So in order to understand Bethel, you have to go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. A little bit of context, the uh, kingdom of Israel has just divided into two pieces. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom and is being ruled by one of the sons of Solomon named Rehoboam. In the north, the the, the king is Jeroboam. So in the north, it says, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, "'Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. "'If this people go up to offer sacrifices "'in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, "'then the heart of the people will turn again "'to their Lord, to the king of Judah. "'So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. "'And he said to the people, "'You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. "'Behold your gods, O Israel, "'who brought you out of the land of Egypt.'" So the king in the north, Jeroboam, has a problem. He realizes that, that even though the kingdom is split and many of the tribes are loyal to him in the north, the fact remains the entire religious structure of his people remains in the South, particularly Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the temple is. And so he's going, "Look at, wait a second. People are loyal to me, but they're always going to go down to Jerusalem, and there they're gonna see the temple. They will see the glory of God. They will see the architectural achievements, and they're gonna say, this truly is where God is, and then they will become loyal to the king of the south, in this case, Rehoboam. So he, he kind of rightfully gets it. He's like, yeah, people may be in the northern kingdom with me, but they're gonna keep going down to Jerusalem with the temple, and eventually their hearts will turn, and they're gonna unite under the southern kingdom's banner. So he, he has an idea. He's like, well, I'm just gonna make a different religious structure and, and implement it. And so what does he do? He makes two golden calves. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, this sounds familiar. The king builds golden calves. Well, that's what the people did in the book of Exodus as they rebelled against Moses and the Lord. And so it's, this is what's interesting is that In order to understand our story about Elisha, you have to understand some things about Bethel, particularly from 1 Kings chapter 12. And in order to understand 1 Kings chapter 12, you have to know a little bit about Exodus, where they first built the golden calf. And by the way, even if you get to Exodus and the story of the golden calf, that story has allusions in it from the book of Genesis. So the stories of the Bible are always like connecting with each other and interacting with each other. And I say that as a word of encouragement because if you're new to the faith, new to Christianity, you know, someone says, "You read your Bible. You read your Bible and sometimes it's it's very confusing and hard to read. Keep at it, keep reading and keep reading because the more familiar you become with it, the more you see how the stories are interacting with other stories, the more it will make sense but you just kind of have to do, do the hard work. Not all the Bible's like that. Some of it's straightforward. You read it, no problem. But a lot of times there's, there's layers and layers of interaction. And this is one of those cases. So the king now in the north has two golden calves. What's he gonna do with them? And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. Okay, super important to understand The king and this thing that's happening in Bethel is not just a random drift into idolatry. This is an organized kind of systematic restructuring of the entire religious system. And there's a list of things that he does and they may not seem big to us, but they're massive. So we know that he builds the golden calves, but then he also uh, installs new priests and it says they're not according to Levites. The Levites who are the priests, they serve in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. So if you don't have any Levites, the ones that the law of Moses prescribed as the proper priest, what do you do? He just start, hey, you wanna be a priest? You want to be, who wants to be a priest? You wanna be a priest? Completely defying the law of Moses. So he sets up his own priesthood. He makes graven images. He, he, he allows there to be high places where you can worship. And then, this is really, really kind of subtle, and for us it may not be that big of a deal, but it says, he adds a holiday. He adds a holiday. Well, where did Israel get their holidays from? From the law of Moses. Time itself, the calendar, had prescriptions in it from God. So there's an understanding of sacred space and sacred time that's prescribed in the law of Moses. So he's altering that understanding. We may just think, oh, he had a holiday. I like this guy. We need more holidays, more days off. He is defying the sacred time and religious calendar as prescribed in the law of Moses. So if you add all these things together, you get graven images false idols, a non-Levitical priesthood, decentralized worship. It's not just in Jerusalem where you can go and meet God inside of the temple, it's anywhere on all of these high places and he reorganizes the calendars. In other words, this is a completely different alternative religious structure and it's against the law of Moses, against the the prescriptions of God at every level. This is anti-Israel, anti-Judah, anti-temple, anti-God at every sense. It's a completely different religious structure at every level. And it's set up at Bethel. Now, a who question. Who are we doing with? We know this guy Elisha, but in order to understand Elisha, you have to understand Elijah, which is confusing because their names sound alike. Again, especially if if, if you're new to the faith, there's some things where it's like, oh yeah, Elisha. And then you hear someone say Elijah and then someone else like 10 days later, you hear Elisha, and then you're going, I want to ask if this is the same guy, but I don't want to also let people know that I don't know. Don't worry. You just ask. Totally cool. And at the end of the day, you can always pull one of those, oh, yeah, that's what I thought. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, those, those, there's like those games where you have to, it's like a trivia game and you have to like answer the question. You know some of you, like 20% of you probably in here, the way you're wired, like you don't know it, but you sort of think that you know it, and that if you just have more time, you'll figure it out, and then when they say the answer, you say something like, I was just gonna say that. No, you weren't, you weren't gonna just say that, man. Elijah, Elisha, I knew the difference. Okay, so Elijah is like Batman, and Elisha is like Robin, and in our situation, Batman is about to retire and give the roles and responsibility of Batman to Robin. Elisha is about to go away. He's gonna die. He's gonna get taken up to heaven and he's gonna pass on the role of being kind of the, the, the father figure prophet in Israel to Elisha. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgah. And Elisha said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. So we're at this ending point where Elijah knows he's about to die. He's about to get taken into heaven. And he's telling Elisha, you don't need to go on these final missions with me. And Elisha is saying, there's no way I'm going to leave you. I'm not gonna leave you. Robin is gonna stay next to Batman till the very end. And he he knows that he is going to inherit the role of sort of that lead prophet. Now, other interesting note, this is a side note, but it's, it's really important for biblical interpretation. It says at the end, so they went down to Bethel. So the two prophets leave Gilgah and go down to Bethel. The problem is, is that from Gilgah, you don't go down to Bethel. Bethel is up in every sense. You go up to Bethel. But the prophets are said to go down to Bethel. Now, one of the things that we as modern people don't have a category for is something that we can call theological geography. So if we were looking at like a topographical map, Bethel is up. You go up from Gilgal to Bethel. So we get that, like you literally go up. But ancient people and the world of the biblical authors, there's also theological geography. So what they are saying is, you don't go up to Bethel. I mean, of course you're going up, but you also go down to Bethel. I'll give you an example. Uh, In the Hebrew scriptures, you always, always, always go up to Jerusalem. Now that's literally true because Jerusalem's on a mountain. But even if it wasn't on a mountain, you always go up to Jerusalem, because theological geography does not deal with like altitude and distance, it deals with values and purpose. So, for example, we say, I am going to lift my eyes, lift my gaze up to God. Now, the sort of modern person, and this actually happens, this stuff actually happens by some of like the world's leading atheists. They go, Oh, you Christians. You're so dumb. You're looking up to heaven. Don't you know that, like, up there isn't heaven? There's actually just outer space up there. Like, of course, we know if up there is just outer space. But simultaneously, we also know that God is up there because God sits and rests in the highest of heaven. There's nothing higher than Him. And you could say, What do you mean higher? Like, with like feet? No. I'm talking about that which is most important in all of reality. He is sitting on a throne. He's in the highest of heavens. And so we look up. Likewise, the biblical authors, because here's the thing, there are people critical of the scriptures that say, oh, then they say they went down to Bethel. It's clearly here's another error in the Bible. The person writing the story doesn't know the geography. They're writing hundreds of years after the fact. They don't know what's going on. And it's like, no, bro, you don't know what's going on. You go down to Bethel. You can go up to Bethel, but you also go down. Both are true, because it's literally above Gilgal, but theologically, it is the place of false religion. It is the place of the golden calves. It's the place of idolatry. Okay, now what other who questions are there? Who are these small boys who make fun of poor Elisha for being bald? Who are they? Now when we read this, we immediately read small boys and we think of like five, six, seven-year-old boys. And that's that's a fair assessment because it says small boys and also letting you know that the Hebrew, the two Hebrew words that are translated small boys, kind of the most basic, easy way to translate that is small boys. The word boys is na'ar and the word small is katan. And na'ar katan in its most straightforward translation is small boys. But there's also some flexibility in the words that can make a whole other set of ideas rise to the surface. So what I wanna do is say, uh, now R for boys and "katan" for small, majority of the time could totally just mean small boys. But I'm gonna show you some other places in the scriptures where these words appear and how they are translated to demonstrate you how that word can actually function. So here's three verses all dealing with the word na'ar, which is translated boys in our passage with Elijah. Exodus 2.6, this is when baby Moses is found. When she opened it, the basket, she saw the child and behold, the baby, na'ar, was crying. So na'ar in this case is boy, but it's referring to a baby, a baby. Genesis 37.2, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a, a boy, an R, with the sons of Beha and Zilpha, his father's wives. Flashback to last week, the passage about polygamy. So Joseph, in this case, is a boy. He's just a boy, he's an R. Um, but Joseph is how old? He's 17. So he's a late teenager in this. But you also have to understand the ancient Near Eastern world because there's no such thing as late teenagers in the ancient world. Modern people, we have this like giant period called adolescence and with every year, we pretend as if that phase is longer and longer and longer. Where for ancient people, very early, you transition 12, 13, 14, you're a man now, dude. Life's hard, get to work if the ground's cursed, you're gonna die, let's get going, type of thing. And so Joseph, when it says he's 17, no one's thinking like, oh, he's just a young teenager. He's a man. Most likely what's occurring is this word is oft, can be used to describe um, men who aren't married yet. And so if someone is yet to become the head of their household in the ancient Near Eastern world, they're still a the R. And that's actually... Um, True of other places, I've been in places in the world where they talk about the youth and then there's like 30-year-olds there. But they're referring to, by using the word youth, they might be referring to people who have yet to be married and become the head of their household. So the words are just flexible depending upon the culture. But in this case, clearly Naar is a 17-year-old, late teenager, by ancient standards, a man. 2 Samuel 18, 12. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, and, in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man and our Absalom. This is a point in biblical history where Absalom is rebelling against King David. He's a full-grown man. But because he's not first in rank, he is not the true king, he is a son in some sense as far as rank, he is called a nar. So you can see that word boy can mean anything from like a baby to children to teenagers to adults that maybe aren't married or have yet to become the head of their household. Okay, now uh, katan, the Hebrew word, This is the the word that's translated small, and small is a great translation. But some other ways this word can be used. Genesis 27, 15. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger, Catan son. So you have two brothers, and the younger is called the small one. Now, he might literally be physically smaller than the older brother, but he is the smaller in the sense that he's the younger brother. And again, think about an ancient Near Eastern context, we're talking about ranking here. It's not just that you're younger in age, but the firstborn is the first in rank. He is the preeminent one. He is the one that has the authority. So the younger son is the smaller son. But he actually might be, the little brother might be way bigger physically, Genesis 29, 16, very similar. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger, Catan, was Rachel. 2 Kings 18, 24. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least, Catan, of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Okay, in this section, in this verse, we're talking about servants. And then there's the the small servants, the younger servants, but it's not talking about size or age. It's likely referring to rank or ability. So maybe these servants aren't as skilled as the other or maybe they rank a little less. Maybe the ranking has to do with competency. But either way, we're not talking merely about something small or younger in this case. We're talking about like some type of ranking or competency. They're the least of the servants. Now, there's another Hebrew word that's used in our Elisha passage to refer to the small boys, and that's Yeled in the singular, in in the plural for Hebrew, they're called Yeledim. And that word for boys is also used in 2 Chronicles 10 8 through 11, which some of you might remember this section from our Solomon series. Rehoboam seeks out counsel. He's inherited the kingdom from his father, Solomon, and the people are asking for easier work. They've been worked too hard. And it says this, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men, the Yeled, same word, who has grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men, the Yeledim, who had grown up with him, said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy burden, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king seeks out advice. He goes to the old men. Who are the wise ones? they give him advice. He doesn't listen to them. He goes to the young boys. But the young boys aren't children. They are like servants in his royal court. And they're the, the younger advisors. They grew up with him. So they're in similar age to the king. And they're like, man, these people are complaining. How about you give them something to complain about? Pull one of those ones. You, you think that's hard? Let me give you something that's real hard. Then you'll be complaining. Like that's their advice. Goes terribly wrong. Terribly bad. But again, the point is the, D, the, the young ones are not little children in this case. They're advisors that have an official type of counseling advisory role. So sometimes this word might even be used to describe um, people who are in an official sense in service to someone of higher rank. So you're taking the role of boy or son to someone who's in a higher rank. So when we look at who these young boys are, it's certainly not wrong just by the language alone to translate it small boys. But then when you understand, wait, there's 42 people who are right outside of the city, and the city is a place of absolute corrupted worship, and they're mocking God, maybe this, maybe these are, are, it's a gang of teenagers? Maybe it's adult men. Maybe it's servants who are in lower ranking to the official priesthood that's set up in Bethel. We don't know exactly, but it's certainly not just isolated to being like young children, like a seven-year-old kid. Okay, now let's look at their actual accusation. What, What are they saying to Elisha? They're saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Now, favorite Bible verse of many people. So, as modern people who are obsessed with youthfulness, to our detriment, modern Americans are obsessed with youthfulness. We look at this and go, oh, these boys, they're making fun of him because he's old and he's balding. He's just old and he's losing some hair so they're making fun of him. So symbolically, baldness in our culture deals with with age. That's why if you go bald younger, it's like he went bald even though he was young. It's like, it's, it's wrapped up with age usually, symbolically. But that's not how it would have been functioning in the ancient world. So I want to step into the Hebrew scriptures to look at how baldness was seen in the Bible. So what is baldness? How is that depicted in the Hebrew scriptures? So Leviticus. Some of you who are bald are going, I hope this says something good right now. Oh man. Never, usually, that's not the case with Leviticus, Lord. Don't let me down. Okay. Listen to this. This is fascinating. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. Did you know this? This is deep, deep Hebrew wisdom from Leviticus. If your hair falls out, you are bald but he is also clean. And if a man hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead, he is clean. But if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish white disease, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Therefore the priest shall examine him and if the disease swelling is reddish white on the bald head or on his bald forehead like the appearance of leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man, he is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. In other words, there's no issue with baldness in the Hebrew scriptures. The issue is if you're going bald and they discover some reddish white, scabbing skin type of thing, then it might be leprous, so you need to go to the priest to have this you know, classified. Like what's going on here? But the, the being bald, there's no issue with baldness in and of itself. Here's some more. This is uh, from the book of Jeremiah depicting like a, a incredibly like, tragic scene where there's just complete death. Both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread of the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. So, Jeremiah is depicting this horrible tragedy where there's no one to to even bury the dead. There's no one there to cry or to mourn. And in the process of describing the mourning process, he says there's gonna be no one to shave their head. Like, why why is that? Well, many ancient cultures had rituals where if you were experiencing great loss or tragedy or death, you would do things like tear your clothes, throw ashes on yourself and shave your head so that you had a symbol on your physical body to let the external world know that you are in this grave state of mourning and tragedy. You see this in the book of Job. Job loses just about everything and it says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. So part of the way that you told the the world that you're in a state of mourning is you had these physical acts and they were symbolic. We just don't do that stuff. Which is, it's like to our detriment because um, when, when bad things happen and then you just go about life as normal, like everyone just asks you the same questions. Oh, how you doing? Hey, good to see you. And it's like where they're at emotionally and socially, you're in a different world. And everywhere you go, you're just bumping into things where many people in the ancient world saw fit and had the wisdom to say, why don't we give people a way, to, a way to say like, hey, not right now. And you physically embodied it. So we just immediately jumped to an age thing. Elisha's an old man and he's balding. Well, symbolically, that's probably not what is being made fun of. And on top of that, he's likely not like an old guy. It's not like an elderly type of thing because Elijah is the one who's dying and being taken to heaven and Batman is giving the bat cave to the young Robin. Elisha is going to carry the torch. The mantle will be passed to him. But at first reading, you just see like young kids making fun of someone because they're old. It's probably not what's going on. Why might Elisha be bald? Second 2 Kings 2:12. After Elijah had passed, says, then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Elijah's passed, and now Elisha is entering into a state of mourning. He t- tore his clothes. So we've looked at the where, the who, the what, and let's sort of, sort of connect the dots now and say, well, why, why is this happening? Why are they mocking Elisha? What's this about? What's the motivation? Why would these young boys, small boys, teenagers, adults, servants in the priesthood, whoever they are, why would they do this? Just where it gets weird. Thank you. The point is like it, <laughs> the whole thing's been weird, but now it's getting really weird. This is how the book of Second Kings starts. Remember our story with Elijah takes place in Second Kings chapter two. You flash back a chapter and this is how it begins. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elisha the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elisha went. Uh, There's a king, Ahaziah, and he falls. He, he falls so bad, he doesn't know if he's gonna live. That's how bad the fall was. And so he sends his messengers to inquire of Baal Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Elijah is told, no, go, go tell the messengers, like, is there not a god in Israel that you should seek after and inquire of? But nevertheless, you go and seek after this god of Ekron, Baal Baalzebub? A couple of notes about the word Baal-zebub. The first part of that word Baal-zebub is Baal and that just is a word that means Lord. And so oftentimes, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Israel goes after the Baals or the, the false Baals or Baal and those are false gods and Baal is the name of a particular false god. But it just means Lord. Zebub is a little bit more complicated. Because the, the God's name that he is likely referring to is Baal Zebul, Baal meaning Lord, and the Zebul likely meant something like exalted Baal. So he's supposed to seek after the exalted Baal, but in our passage, the Baal Zebul, bull at the end, the last syllable, is changed to a bub sound with a B rather than an L. And what the scriptures may be doing is actually mocking Baal Zibbul by changing that last L sound, which would render something like exalted Baal, exalted Lord, to Baal Zibbul, which is something maybe relating to Baal of the flies, like Lord of the flies. And the insult may be like, well, where do flies congregate? A lot of thi- nothing fresh or clean, always bad. You, first thing that came to your head was probably like animal dung. So the scriptures might be in a similar way how there's theological geography. We'll call this like theological like grammar or something like that where it's like, let's let's actually mock the so-called exalted Baal and call him Baal Zebub. He's just the Lord of dung or the Lord of flies. So that's possible there. So have that in mind because that's important for this next part. The messengers returned to the king and said to him, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. You're not gonna come up, excuse me, not gonna come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? In other words, if someone said you're gonna die, it's like, what type of man? Like, who told you I'm gonna die? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king knows who he is right away. And he said, Elisha the Tishbite. You could picture like the king, almost like in a children's like Bible cartoon. Ah, that Elisha the Tishbite. Elisha the Tishbite. And Elisha the Tishbite is presented to you with visuals. He's a man that's, has, he's like hairy with garments of skin. Now, the phrase garments of skin, again, this is a, a fine translation because the biblical translators are wanting you to, to picture what the Hebrew is wanting you to picture. And they're wanting you to picture like a completely hairy dude, so much that even his clothes are made of garments of skin. And so it's like the, this hairy dude. But, in the Hebrew, this sentence actually has a different phrase in it. Elijah is called a Baal. Remember, we just read about Baal, Zibub. Baal means Lord. Elijah is called Baal. He's called the Baal of hair. He's the Lord or master of hair. So we know from the other places in Scripture that he's a man who's probably he might have like a Nazarite vow. Maybe he has long hair, and his clothes are all like animal skins and stuff like that. So it's like, oh yeah, he's this hairy dude. But literally, I mean, what the text actually says is he's Baal of hair. He's the Lord of hair. Now, why is that important? Because the Scriptures are purposely in contrasting these two figures. There is a king who seeks out the false god Baal Zebub and the God of Israel, the true God, sends him a Baal, but not a Baal Zebub, he sends him the Baal of hair. And the Baal of hair is the representative of the true God of Israel. So there's a contrasting there. You went after Baal Zebub, meanwhile, God's appointed man is the Baal of hair. Super weird, right? Super weird. Now, what happens to the Baal of Hair? You know, yeah, the yeah. Second Kings two nine through twelve. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, "Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you." And Elisha said, "Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me." Elisha says, "I want to do everything you've done. I want to walk in your ways, Elisha. But let it be double." Let me have double your anointing, double the presence. I want to walk in the ways of the Lord, double than what you even did. Verse 10, and he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And when he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. So Elisha, he dies, but Elisha sees what's taking place, really. It's not just the death of a man. God is coming to bring his faithful prophet home and he brings his faithful prophet prophet home in like these chariots of fire and he sees it, which is confirmation that the mantle is being passed, the torch is being passed. Elisha will be the new Elisha. But then what does the new Elisha do? He goes into a state of mourning. Why? Because it's not just some prophet. Elijah was a father to Elisha. As Elijah's passing, he cries out, My father, my father, I am a son to you. So his father figure is taken up, and Elisha enters into a state of mourning, of sadness. Elijah's gone, but now Elisha is in the role of like lead prophet the anointed and appointed one of the god of israel now let's put begin to put all these pieces together our original verse he went up from there to bethel a place of organized systematized false religious structure it is opposed to everything that is good It's the opposite of the law of Moses, anti-Jerusalem, anti-temple, anti-God. He goes up to there and on his way, some small boys or a gang of adolescents, a gang of teenagers or young men or possibly people who are in some sense in official servanthood to the false religious structure, maybe a part of the priestly system. But just so you know, I I doubt 42 five-year-old boys are hanging out outside of the city at this point and they jeer at him and they mock him go up you bald head go up you bald head why is he bald maybe there's a chance he's losing some hair but we know for certain he has entered into the official state of mourning he lost his father figure the true prophet of God and when they see this they mock him and they tell him to go up who just previously went up Who got taken up? Elijah. Elisha was able to see what was truly taking place, but maybe for the rest of the world, it's just he died. So Elisha, you think you have the double blessing? You think you're God's representative? You're not like Elisha, you're nothing like Elisha. Elisha was the Lord of hair. He was the wild man. You're, You're the bald guy, you're no prophet, you haven't inherited the double blessing. So why don't you just go up and die? Just like your father figure. Go up and die, Baldy. Go up and die. Get it over with. Your God is dead. Your prophet is dead. The God of Israel is nowhere to be found. Don't you know we are in Bethel? And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out. It's very fascinating that the story is all about fathers and sons and then the one who, att- like there's, it's, like why does it just say bears? Like there's these two she bears that come out. Now these two bears um, are, from this time period in this region, are Syrian brown bears. So oftentimes we, like when you read two bears, you're, in your mind you think like some giant grizzly bear. Um, Syrian brown bear is a smaller subspecies of the brown bear. Um, much smaller than a grizzly, probably four to five feet from tail to to nose, about 400 pounds. Now, that's still big. Like, don't be like, oh, it's not a grizzly, I could take it. No, it'll still mess you up. (laughs) It's still gonna mess you up. But I say that because if there's two Syrian brown bears and 42 dudes, you immediately think, like when you read the passage, 42 little kids got killed. Like, look, if, if you've got any wits about you and there's 42 of you and the bears come, someone's gonna say, everyone run in a different direction and only a couple of us are gonna get killed. But like when it starts to chase after this guy, what direction do you run? The other way. Like we just assumed the 42 bears, they killed all of these, these, these kids. Well, maybe if like all the, the kids were like, like they took turns, they're like, okay, I'm up. That kid gets eaten. Okay, now you in line, man. Let's, and all the way down, all of them, they all got eaten up and killed, one by one. But likely, there's an attack and everyone scatters and runs. Now, it says that they tore them up and some translations say maul. And that's, again, that's fine. The, the word here used in Hebrew can mean tear, to maul, but it can also mean to divide or split. It's the same word that's used when Moses parts the Red Sea. So it might, it might mean, and this is the, the weakest version, this is the weakest version, it might mean something akin to there's an attack of bears and they come to a group of kids and they divide it. That would be like the weakest understanding. The strongest understanding would be they ripped all 42 people in half. Or it's probably, in my opinion, likely something in the middle. There's a bear attack and they start tearing through the, through the young men. And some of them get Torah, Maybe some of them are killed. Maybe some of them are just really messed up. Maybe some of them, the, the smart kid was still, saw which way they ran, and he took off the other way. And he's got a good story to tell. We don't know. But it's certainly, when you put all the details together, it doesn't appear as if two Syrian brown bears came after 42 young boys and ate every last one of them. It's probably not what's taking place. What's taking place is likely within this anti-Israel, anti-kingdom, anti-God, anti-law of Moses station. There is 42 young men that likely outside of the city gates have some type of role or responsibility. They're official in some sense, maybe to the leadership, maybe to the priesthood. And they mock the prophet of God to his face in his state of mourning and say something like, time to die, just go up and get it over with. and God sends this judgment upon this wicked town and these wicked people and the bears come and they do some type of damage, which we don't know. Now, that's a very long way of saying, uh, it's not as bad as your initial first reading. Okay, so I just did a lot of work to say it's not as bad, but now what I wanna do is tell you, no, it's still super scary. This is why. Because there's a point to this story. There's a point. The point is that if you continue to mock God, one day you will face his judgment. There has been an ongoing city, a location, Bethel, that has mocked God. It is against everything he's prescribed. And there's representatives of this. And they are mocking God's people. They might even be persecuting. This might be like a death threat. And if you continue to do that forever, you will face God's judgment. You don't just get to mock God forever and get away with it. Now, this is so true that even if, let's say some of these guys who got away, they continued on their rebellion and sin and they never would repent, and you're like, oh no, they got away with it. Their, their friends got attacked by the bear, but they lived to a nice, good old age where they themselves grew bald and had lots of kids. Look it, they still, Will have to answer to God. You face Him in this life or the next. No human escapes the judgment seat of God. Like, and this is why this, this, this story is still so powerful because as modern people, we don't like talking about this stuff. You don't even like, oh yeah, like, that's what it's telling you. God is a God of justice and you don't get to mock Him forever. And so it's a warning that if you are in like open rebellion to God, You you need to deal with that. Because everyone, whether in this life or the next, has to answer to God. And God brings his, his judgment. He will not be mocked forever. He will not allow evil men to persecute and oppress his people forever. There's a day when he will say, enough, enough. And that should be a word of warning to every single person. But on top of that, here's the word of hope is that God is a God of justice and everyone will have to answer to him but he's also a God of mercy, grace, and compassion. And many generations after the prophet Elijah had passed away and died, another prophet would arise in the Holy Land. And this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, would go about proclaiming the good news of his kingdom. And he not only pointed people to God, he pointed people to himself because he in and of himself was God in the flesh. And when the representatives of the false religious structure of the day confronted him, they mocked him to his face. And they did this to such a degree that eventually they take him up to Jerusalem, take him outside of the city walls, nail him to a cross and continue to mock him to his face. But rather than bring the beast from the wilderness, the animals, the bears, to bring justice upon those people mocking, this God is merciful in that moment and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because this God came not as a bear at the cross, but he came as the Lamb of God who comes to be slain for the people who mock him. So you can come to the Lamb of God knowing that, I mocked God, I've rebelled, I'm just like those people. But this God is so merciful that he's provided a way so that I don't have to face the bears. I can go to the lamb and be united with him. But you also have to understand that this lamb is also a lion. And if you continue to rebel against the lamb all of your days and continue to shake your fist in defiance and mock God and mock his people, you will face the lion. Everyone will face the judge. And on that day, you better hope that you go before him and saying, I'm, I'm with the lamb, I accept his mercy, I accept what he's done for me, and I repent from my sins. So this small verse that's removed from like children's Bibles, to kinda skip the page or three verses, has a whole lot to say. God is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind, but he doesn't let sin go on forever because he's fair and he's just. And so if you are a believer here today, you come with thanks. Lord, thank you. I was out there mocking you, and yet you showed me grace. And for those of you who are here today, and it's like you're in a place where you're defiantly rebelling against God, uh, I just encourage you, man, to reconsider that path. You can't get away with it forever. He's good. He's a good father. He'll love you and take you as you are and forgive you of your sins. He invites you to his table to be a part of his people. You should take that offer because tomorrow isn't promised. Let's stand as we take communion.